Every summer in Kansas City, dozens of men don the royal blue uniform in hopes of uniting a town with winning baseball. But with time, these men move on, both from the public eye and eventually on to the next life. But they'll always be remembered here, their lives and stories chronicled and preserved from multitudes of people who knew them well. It's time for the latest chapter in Remembering the Royals with Dave O on Clubhouse Conversation. He has to be one of the most humble people in baseball history. He never talked about his baseball career. He didn't talk about his statistics. My mom told me growing up that when fans would stop him on the street and they would want to talk to him about his baseball career, he'd always change the subject and want to know about them. He would ask about their personal interests. So he never talked about himself. He was such a humble guy, and I think that's what makes his induction in Cooperstown such you know, a sports success story, an American success story. Those the words of Eric Simpson, grandson of Major League Hall of Famer Joe Gordon. As it's Davo, glad you're along for the comprehensive life story of the Royals' first manager on Remembering the Royals. And we'll talk to 13 different people about Joe Gordon, many of whom knew him well. From grandkids to teammates, players he managed to sports writers, this is the life story of Joe Gordon. Joseph Lowell Gordon was born on February 18, 1915 in Los Angeles, California. One of two sons, Joe lived the first six years of his life with dad, mom, and brother Jack in the gold mining towns of Arizona in a struggling manner. Here's grandson Eric Simpson. It, it was tough. Um, so in, in 1915, uh, my great-grandfather Lowell put his wife and um, my great-uncle Jack on a train and, and shipped them off to Los Angeles so she could give birth to my grandfather, and, and, and she was with her sister at the time. Um, and then a, a couple months went by, and then they came back to the Arizona gold mining camps and it was a tough time. It was it was um, isolated. There weren't a lot of kids, and um, for for a while they even lived in uh, basically a tent, a, a canvas tent. And it was tough. It was very tough times. And and I know that my great grandfather was gone to some of the other mining camps during that time. And um, in 1921, my great grandmother said she'd had enough, and so she packed up the two little kids and moved to Portland to to be near her sister and and we don't have any evidence that my that my grandfather or my great uncle ever saw their father ever again once arriving in portland the gordon boys began excelling at most everything they did in the case of joe that meant a variety of things from schoolwork to baseball football to gymnastics and even playing the violin i think my sister still has his violin as a matter of fact but i i saw pictures of him when he was part of the portland youth orchestra and um, I've even seen photographs of him when he was a player playing the violin. I know his mother, because my great-grandmother was um, pretty strict and, and forced him to practice and used to pull him off of the sandlots in Portland to come in and practice his violin. And, and I think he spoke highly of that, if I recall, that you know she, she had high hopes for him musically. And in reality, I think it, it helped his timing in baseball and, and maybe his timing in, in some of the other sporting um, endeavors that he had. Later on in life, the world would get to know Joe Gordon as Flash Gordon, long rumored to have been his nickname because of the comic strip character. But as it turns out, Joe was Flash long before these days and even before the comic book character himself. You know, it's long been rumored that, that he got the nickname from the comic book character Flash Gordon. But we found a yearbook of his from 1931, so he would have been 16 years old at the time, 
and in the yearbook, his nickname was Flash. Well, that was 18 months before the comic book character was even basically thought up and drawn up. So in, in our estimation, he had that nickname Flash when he was 16 years old, and it, it basically followed him throughout his career. And then once the comic book character came into being, then it really uh, became his icon. And it became Joe's icon during his high school days at Jefferson High School in Portland, where Joe excelled in many areas before attending the University of Oregon to play both football and baseball. But according to multiple family members, including granddaughter Sue Arnold, a good portion of Joe's eventual baseball success was because of sacrifices made by his brother Jack. I did meet and, you know, grow to love my grandfather's brother, Jack. As a matter of fact, I remember meeting him at my great-grandma's house, Louise's house, and I remember saying to him, what am I supposed to call you? And he said, you can call me Jack. And he said, call me Grand Jack. And I chuckled about that, and my grandmother, so Dorothy, had told me, that Jack also played baseball and wanted my grandfather to excel, so he kind of stepped back. Stepping back included Jack working at the Zellerbach Paper Company from 1932 to 1935 in order to help pay for Joe's college. During this time, Jack and Joe became closer than ever, playing semi-pro baseball together in the summers. And after Joe signed with the Yankees in June of 1935, Jack enrolled at the University of Oregon himself, playing two years of varsity baseball and eventually spending a short time in the minor league system of the Yankees. Oh yes, the Yankees, the team that signed Joe in the place where his Hall of Fame career in pro baseball would begin. As it turned out, Joe would spend just two years in the minor leagues before making his New York debut in 1938. There was Oakland in 1936 and Newark in 1937. While with Newark, Gordon played on a team that went 109-43, and leading to much fanfare for the future of the Yankees. Here's Hall of Fame baseball writer Bill Madden, the author of seven baseball books, the 2010 J.G. Taylor Spink Award winner, and former 37-year New York Daily News contributor. Yeah, I wrote a whole article about them a few years ago. Uh, uh, Many years ago, they had a reunion of them, uh, and I did a piece on the sporting news on them. Um, Joe is no longer with us at the time of the reunion, but... um, Uh, Yeah, that was a great team. That's considered to be the greatest minor league team ever. Coincidentally enough, amongst the admirers of the 37 Newark Bears was a future Yankees teammate of Joe Gordon named Bobby Brown, who would go on to one day be the 10-year president of the American League. Brown recalls being a teenager and watching Joe play for the Bears. Well, I knew he was from the University of Oregon, and he was a good athlete, and that he played some with the Newark Bears because I was in junior high school then, and uh, I followed the Bears. And uh, in 1946, I signed with the Yankees when the uh, war ended, and uh, I was in spring training with them uh, in Florida at that particular time. And very, very nice guy, you know, and helpful to 
young kids trying to make it. Joe himself was a young kid trying to make it when he arrived in New York for his rookie campaign in 1938 and trying to fill the shoes of former Yankee greats at second base like Jimmy Williams, Del Pratt, and the player he'd replace, Tony Lazeri, would be difficult. But as six-year big leaguer Joe Keogh notes, it didn't take long for Gordon to make his own mark in Yankee history. You think of the guy he replaced, I mean, he made uh, Lazeri look like a Wally Pipp um, situation with Garrick. Uh, he just came in and nobody missed Lazeri after that. It just... Uh, Joe Gordon was there. Joe Gordon's first year in New York saw him immediately bond with skipper Joe McCarthy, who became like a second father to the rookie. In Gordon, McCarthy saw huge talent and potential, along with a huge heart in his 23-year-old rookie second baseman. One memorable moment of 1938 came on the season's 13th game, April 30th, which was also the season debut of Joe DiMaggio, who had been holding out. A pop-up was hit, and while trying to catch it, both DiMaggio and Gordon collided landing each with a night stay in the hospital. McCarthy saw this unfortunate situation as the perfect chance to have his rookie second baseman take 30 games off, a normal practice for rookies he thought to be in awe of the big league situation. The Yankee manager believed that by spending time next to him on the bench, young players could pick up the finer points of the game and have things slow down. It was during this time that Gordon asked McCarthy and Yankees GM Ed Barrow for permission to wed his fiancée Dorothy Crum, to which his request was was obliged, and with the season unfolding, the Yankee second baseman wed his fiance in Maryland. Here's granddaughter Sue Arnold on what Dorothy was like and a true American love story. I loved my grandmother so much. She was an amazing woman. She, I never heard her raise her voice. As grandkids, when we were in trouble, we would get sent to our room, which was the guest room. If we got talking too loudly, she would just point to the room. Our toys had to be left at their house. Um, Couldn't take them home. And grandma would make my doll clothes. And um, I have countless pictures of me sitting in her lap, snuggling her in her red chair. She and I used to watch Shirley Temple together because I was the only girl, blonde hair, super curly hair. And my grandma always used to tell me I looked like Shirley Temple. One thing in particular that I will never forget about my grandparents, grandma would sit in that chair, and my grandma and grandpa would always point their index finger towards each other, and grandpa would point back and touch with his index finger the tip of my grandmother's finger. And I remember very young saying to her, because she would do that to me as well, And I remember saying, Grandma, what does that mean? And she said, oh, that means I love you. Shortly after returning from his wedding, Joe was back in the field and the Yankees were well on their way to a World Series championship. Individually, Joe's first season in New York would be the only one in which he was not an all-star, but that's not telling the whole story as Gordon smashed 25 home runs, drove in 97, and played gold glove caliber defense. For his efforts, Gordon finished 12th in MVP voting, and just like that, a pair of Joes, DiMaggio and Gordon, were we're setting the Bronx on fire. Here's longtime Yankees PR director and television producer Marty Appel, author of 24 books, including Pinstripe Empire, considered the definitive history of the Yankees. He was obviously a contemporary of DiMaggio. DiMaggio had come up in 1936. So they were the new-look Yankees, and of course, 
great as the Babe Ruth Lou Gehrig Yankees were, when you think about starting in 36 and going to 43, the Yankees only missed one pennant in there, 1940. So they had a shot there at eight straight pennants, except for that three-game loss in 1940. Joe Gordon was part of all of that, and that was a remarkable streak, which we may never see again. All in all, Joe Gordon won four championships in his seven years with the Yankees, making six all-star teams and garnering MVP votes in every season but his last. Flash provided once-in-a-blue-moon power and production at a position that wasn't used to seeing it. Here's grandson Eric Simpson. So in 42, he had a 29-game hitting streak that's never been matched by any Yankee since, since 1942. And then also, he was the American League home run leader for uh, second baseman until Robbie Cano beat that record this summer um, with the with the Seattle Mariners. But the, I think the thing that's most interesting is, so my grandfather hit 253 homers in 11 seasons. It took Robbie Cano 12 seasons to do it. I was happy about that. So... But I, I find that statistic so interesting that he retired as a player in 1950, and that record stood for 65 years. I mean, Babe Ruth's home run record didn't even stand for for 65 years. After winning the league MVP in 1942 and the World Series in 1943, Gordon was 28 years old and yearning to serve his country as a pilot. As a result, in mid-December of 1943, Gordon announced his decision to join the armed forces, famously quoted as saying, I plan to return to the Yankees after the war if I'm still young enough. And nearly two years later, on November 14th of 1945, Gordon received his honorable discharge from the U.S. Army, and as things would turn out, would return for one more season with the Yankees in 1946. But, as former teammate Bobby Brown recalls, Gordon's love for flying was still more evident than ever that spring training. We were going from uh, St. Petersburg over to Bradenton, and in those days, they didn't have a bridge. You had to take a a ferry or a, a ship, and I think he buzzed the ship. He was in an airplane, and he buzzed the ship, and everybody said, that's Joe Gordon. Unfortunately for the Yankees and Gordon, Joe's last season in the Bronx failed to live up to his pre-war campaigns, as he hit just 210 with 11 home runs in 112 games. Even so, Gordon made the All-Star team and continued to be a wizard defensively at second. However, all good things must come to an end, and with the Yankees missing the playoffs, it was time to shake things up with their 31-year-old second baseman. Here's Hall of Fame baseball writer Bill Bill Madden with the birth of a baseball trade. I remember DiMaggio telling me the story. I guess what happened was uh, was during the World Series, and Vec, the Indians owner, and Vec and Dan Topping were sitting together in the stands talking about a trade uh, that uh, Vec had wanted to get Gordon from the Yankees. And uh, Topping went to DiMaggio, I guess after the game or whatever, and he asked him... Uh, about a pitcher that they would get back. And he said they wanted, they were offering us either Red Barrett or Allie Reynolds. Topping asked DiMaggio what he thought, and DiMaggio said, get Allie Reynolds, I can't hit him. And that's essentially how that trade happened. Uh, DiMaggio was given the choice 
by Topping because Topping didn't know much about either one of these two pitchers. The Yankees and Indians made the Joe Gordon for Allie Reynolds swap official on October 19, 1946. Cleveland would receive the offensive infield punch they so needed, and the Yankees would get a pitcher just one year removed from an 18-12 and 12 record. And according to Gordon's Yankee teammate Bobby Brown, while Pinstripe Nation was sad to see Gordon go, the trade worked beautifully for both teams. Reynolds helped us win the pennant in 47, and then subsequent after that to many, uh, many of the pennants we had. Joe was very instrumental in helping the Indians uh, win in 48. While both the Yankees and Indians had quietly given up on the player they had traded, according to Cleveland Indians author and historian Scott Longert, Indians owner Bill Veck deserved a tip of the cap for knowing there was still more petrol in the Gordon tank. It was absolutely huge. I mean, this was a major, major trade on both sides that uh, we gave up on Allie Reynolds and sent him to New York. And, of course, Reynolds will go on to have a terrific career. But Veck somehow uh, really believed that Gordon wasn't done, that uh, 46 was was an aberration, and he thought he could do a really good job at second. And the problem the Indians had, Ray Mack had been our starter for a number of years, really good defensive second baseman, but not much hitting. And uh, Veck really wanted someone at second that could uh, they could hit the long ball, so to speak. And uh, so he was looking at Gordon, and he thought that was the right move to make. And it turned out it was a terrific move. It led to a World Series win in 48. Shortly after arriving in Cleveland, Joe Gordon's presence, leadership, and play were easily noticed by his new Indians teammates. Here's Eddie Robinson, the only living Indians teammate of Joe Gordon, on what he brought to the team. Table. First of all, he was a leader, and he he was a loosey goosey guy. He, uh, he was he he would do funny things. Uh, Thurman Tucker used the the smallest bat on the team of any any player, and Gordon would say, "I hadn't had a hit in a while. I'm going to use a Tucker bat," and he would go up and hit a home run with it, and uh, that kind of stuff. You know he. He nicknamed a lot of the guys, and he loosened everything up. Not only did Joe Gordon keep the clubhouse loose, but he also had a talent in singing. Here's Robinson with music memories. We formed a quartet. He was the main guy that started it. Lefty Wiseman, Joe Gordon, uh, uh, Jim Hegan, and me. And we used to sing and entertain during the rain delays and uh, around the hotel lobbies, we would sing, and uh, he was just a fun guy. Joe Gordon hit the ground running with Cleveland in 1947 as the 32-year-old second baseman looked like his old self again, earning an all-star berth, finishing seventh in the MVP voting, and offensively hitting 272 with 29 home runs and 93 RBIs. But teammate Eddie Robinson is quick to point out that Joe was much more than his bat. He was first guy that I knew that really moved around uh, on the infield. He'd be behind second base or over shaking, almost shaking my hand at first base playing a pull hitter. I remember uh, right after he joined the club in 47, we're playing an exhibition game out in Los Angeles uh, in the Cubs facility out there. And uh, there was a a uh, hot, hard line, hard shot hit back at the pitcher. It was a ground ball, and uh, I was standing there thinking, boy, he almost got you with that hit. And all of a sudden, they're yelling at me to cover first base. Gordon has caught the ball. He's been playing behind second base, 
he caught the ball, and I wasn't covering first. So we barely got the guy out, and everybody got a big kick out of that. But from then on, I checked to see where he was. Two very important historic moments happened during Major League Baseball's 1947 season. The first being Jackie Robinson breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier on April 15, 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And less than 90 days later, the Indians signed 23-year-old Larry Doby to a contract on July 2, 1947. Three days later, on July 5th, Doby became the first African-American ball player in American League history. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, a few Cleveland teammates weren't thrilled by Doby's arrival, and some initially refused to extend pleasantries. There was one Cleveland player that welcomed Doby with open arms, though, and he was, you guessed it, Joe Gordon. Here's Indians author and historian Scott Longert. When Doby came in, you know, it was very, very uncertain. You know, the first uh, African American uh, in the American League, and uh, very nervous about his teammates. But uh, Joe Gordon was one of the first, if not the first, to reach out to him. He probably un- understood the situation very well. And he was a college guy and, and educated and knew that uh, Doby would need someone to uh, to help him out a bit. So he didn't hesitate. And uh, I think it, the stories I've read, it all started with uh, early on when everyone in the field to warm up and nobody would warm up with Doby. And Gordon made a point to come over and, and play catch with them and then uh, talk to them all about second base. I believe at the time Doby was, was pr- pretty much a second baseman trying to learn the outfield. And so Gordon tried to help him any way he could. So I think he was a guy that rather than just shook hands and said, hey, good luck, kid, he, he stuck with them and talked with them and uh, helped him out and gave him info on the pitcher. So I think he really went out of his way to make Doby welcome, which was a great move on his part, a great thing, but it really... I think in all, it helped the ball club tremendously because Doby probably relaxed a bit and uh, became the player we all know he was. He had uh, was a tremendous ball player. One person not surprised to hear the Gordon and Doby story is Joe's grandson, Eric Simpson. Turns out there were many other stories just like it. I even heard a story of there was an Asian American that was going to be denied uh, membership to his country club and he uh, he was going to quit over that, and so the country club ultimately allowed this Asian-American gentleman to be a member as well. So my grandfather he pretty much lived his whole life this way, was very inclusive, and I, I, that's what I remember him, too, as a grandfather. He was, he, was, um, he was a very kind person to everyone. He was very engaging. He, he really was truly colorblind. Just one year after both Joe Gordon and Larry Doby arrived in Cleveland, the Indians won the 1948 World Series, which marks the last time the club has done so as of this documentary's production in 2017. Indians author and historian Scott Longert says Joe was right in the middle of the title. He was a huge cog. I mean, even in 47, he started off big. In April and early May, he hit a number of home runs. And uh, Bob Feller's, I think, tenth one hitter it was Gordon that homered to give him the one nothing win. So he was already in '47, really helping the club, knocking in runs and all. But in '48, he really stepped it up. He had his career season with uh, 32 homers and uh, 120 plus RBIs, I believe. So he was a tremendous cog in that '48 team. He was the guy that came up with the clutch homers, and I think there was a doubleheader in '48 against the Yankees. 
I think it was in uh, June or July, he uh, hit three homers, knocked in six RBIs, had four hits. He was just a terror at the plate, and he really, uh, without that, I don't know if they would they would have won the 48 uh, title. I think the Red Sox might have edged him out, but Gordon was a huge difference maker with uh, from second base, you know, the guy that could count on for 30 homers and 100-plus RBIs. I think few teams had guys that could, uh, that could provide that, and uh, all in all, I think Gordon was a major contributor to, uh, to the 48. The Indians won that 1948 World Series over the Boston Braves in six games, and Joe Gordon hit the only home run in Cleveland's deciding 4-3 Game 6 win. For the first time, all of America got to see a fall classic, as the 48 World Series was the first on a nationwide network. Following the World Series, Gordon toyed with the idea of staying closer to home and playing in the Pacific Coast League, but returned to Cleveland for the 1949 season. One year later, Gordon was even more more adamant about staying closer to his family following the 1949 season and announced he wanted to play in the PCL for the Portland Beavers. However, the Indians wouldn't release him, so Gordon played with them one more season through 1950 before his MLB playing career ended. Joe Gordon finished his four years in Cleveland with a 268 batting average, the exact same one he had with New York, and exactly 100 home runs. For his big league career, the 35-year-old Gordon logged 11 years with a 268 average, 253 home runs, and 975 RBIs. Joe was a five-time World Series champion, a nine-time All-Star, and the 1942 AL MVP. However, he was far from done as a player as Joe got his wish of returning to the Pacific Coast League as a player manager in 1951 and 1952 with the Sacramento Solons. Not surprisingly, the 36-year-old Gordon completely destroyed PCL pitching, belting 43 home runs and driving in 136 during 1951 and hitting 16 more homers in 1952. It was after that season, at the age of 37, that Joe Gordon finally hung it up as a player. From there, Gordon's baseball career moved forward as a scout and coach with the Detroit Tigers organization from 1953 until June 28, 1956. That's when Joe signed on to manage the San Francisco Seals of the PCL and that's where he met future seven-year big league infielder Ken Aspromont. Joe was a wonderful man. He, he, he made me uh, relax at uh, playing the game of baseball. I didn't have to worry about his manager's uh, moves. He was a player's manager. And when I got to him in 1957, I just got married in February of that year, and I led the league in hitting. And uh, I, I account for that, for, for you know, being married and also... Um, Joe handling me the way I should be handled. It was just terrific. In addition to being a great manager, Aspromonte also says that Gordon had quite the sense of humor. Uh, one day I, I uh, struck out with, with loaded bases and I came back to the, to the dugout and I threw my helmet. My helmet hit him by accident and he threw it right back at me and hit me. <laughs> he said... Uh, that will teach you to, to throw your helmets. Don't do that. On top of playing seven years at the big league level, Ken Aspromonte also managed the Cleveland Indians from 1972 to 1974, and during those years, modeled his managerial style much like Joe's. He grew up with, look, if your talents got you to the big leagues, that then you you know what is expected of you. And he didn't he didn't have any meetings. Didn't have. He just says, go play your game the way it should have been played and then I'll make the decisions if, if, if something goes haywire. I will put up with physical errors, but not mental errors, not for major league ball players. And I, I, I agree with him. 
I managed that way myself when I managed the Cleveland Indians. In fact, I copied Joe as a manager. I played on the four or five different managers. I didn't particularly care for most of them, and but Joe I did care for simply because he let the players play to their ability. And, and, and it works. People don't want to be uh, told what to do every minute of the day or have meetings every, every time after you lose a ball game. And that's the way he was, and, they, and it worked for his, his, his team in, in Cleveland. And it worked for his team in Detroit when he went over there. After leading the San Francisco Seals to a PCL championship in 1957, it was time for Joe Gordon to get back to the big leagues, and he was hired as the manager of the Cleveland Indians in 1958 by the infamous Frank Lane. Yes, plenty more on that later. The Gordon-led Indians finished a respectable 46-40 and during his initial campaign in 1958 and had an impressive second-place record of 89-65 and in 1959. However, Toward the end of that second season, Gordon announced he would not return for 1960 due to difficult relations with GM Frank Lane, who often publicly questioned Gordon's baseball decisions, and four days later, the Cleveland GM fired him. The canning was short-lived, though, as after a public outcry from Cleveland fans and failed negotiations with Leo DeRocher, Gordon was rehired for the 1960 season. Still, harmony between Lane and Gordon would remain elusive, and on August 3rd, 1960, with Cleveland at 49 and 46, the rarest of all rare occurred, a managerial trade. Frank Lane shipped Gordon to the Detroit Tigers for skipper Jimmy Dykes, shocking the baseball world in what is still the only manager-for-manager trade in MLB history. 1960 Cleveland Indian Ken Aspromonte remembers the day well. When I came to the stadium that day, uh, I was just shocked. They said, Kenny, you're not going to believe it. I said, what, what, what's happening? He says, Joe is going to Detroit, and Joe Dykes is coming to Cleveland. I said, what? I can't believe I didn't know Jimmy Dykes. And very nice man, but I didn't know him. But I was so sad to see Joe go. So I got a hold of Joe, and I said, Joe, can you take me with you? He said, no, they won't let you go. And I said, oh, God, oh. I was really, really upset. The players on the field weren't the only ones upset with GM Frank Lane, as predictably so were Cleveland fans. Here's Indians author and historian Scott Longert. Yeah, Lane was a real unpopular guy with everybody, uh, with the players and the managers and the fans. He was, you know, trader Lane. He was. He seemed to make a trade just for the sake of making a trade. That was uh, really a strange thing to, to do, but he went ahead and did it to kind of show you the, his, uh, where his head was at. Just uh, Not only will I trade players, I'll trade managers. So he was highly unpopular, and uh, when, he was, when he removed, people were thrilled. But you know, Joe had, uh, had a good year managing the team, I believe, in 59. They had made a run at the pennant and finished uh, second to the White Sox. So Joe was a good manager. And why Lane would even think about moving him and bringing in Jimmy Dykes, that's beyond me. I don't really understand his thinking there. After arriving in Detroit, Joe Gordon finished out the 1960 season as the Tigers' manager, but the team struggled with a record of just 26-31. and 31. Following the season, Joe Gordon and the Tigers went their separate ways. However, Gordon wasn't a managerial free agent long as the Kansas City Athletics and owner Charlie Finley came calling and named Joe Skipper for the 1961 season. Gordon managed the first eight games in peace, but then, on April 27, 1961, Charlie Finley hired a new GM, just hired from Cleveland. His name? 
Frank Lane. Right away, Gordon and Lane picked up right where they left off in Cleveland, with Lane publicly criticizing and unfairly questioning Gordon, and Gordon telling Lane to back off. Not surprisingly, the strained relationship didn't last long, and on June 19th of 1961, Joe Gordon was fired by Frank Lane and the Kansas City Athletics. An extremely rare audio of the actual press conference, courtesy of Jeff Logan and the Kansas City Baseball Historical Society, you can hear Frank Lane talking to the media and informing them that of all things, Gordon had been fired without even being reached. We have decided that in order to further the best interest of what we are trying to accomplish with the Kansas City Athletics from here on in in the future to make a change in the field manager. We appreciate very much the efforts which Joe Gordon has lent to toward that end. But however, it must be obvious we would not be making a change if we didn't believe that by making such a change, we might get better results. Expect to get better results. So we're not putting the burden on Hank Bauer to make 300 hitters out of 250 hitters or any, any such thing as that. But we know by example that Hank is a, an inspirational leader. He's been a, a great competitor. Uh, Hank has been played, has played under good managers. We know quite a bit of that has rubbed off. And uh, by and large, uh, while it's always a, a distasteful thing to part company with a, a manager and for the third uh, time, for the <laughs> third time, why uh, uh, we believe that Hank will be the kind of manager that uh, the players will respond to, and certainly the fans. And uh, also know that uh, when the final analysis is how many games you won or lost, we're we are building for the future. We've spent a lot of money in signing uh, maybe a score of fine young players throughout the country. What uh, what do you do with Jordan's contract? <laughs> Jordan's contract will be honored. Is he another job or is he just? Uh, we don't know that he has another job, Ernie. In fact, the matter is, we were trying to reach him all day. And I've talked to his wife two or three times. Joe's out fishing. Frank, sit down, please. And uh, in fact, I called Dorothy again just now. So uh, while well, there's been a lot of joking going along, but uh, when Cookie Lavagetto was given a vacation of a week, Joe says, you're not a sport unless you give me a vacation for a month. And uh, I say a lot of uh, banding back and forth in jest about giving a vacation. But other than that, I would say that Joe has no official notice of this. And we haven't, haven't been able to, haven't been able to talk to Dorothy about two or three times. And I didn't think that uh, she'd break the Dorothy other than she said she'd definitely have Joe call me by 2.30 because he's out on the lake fishing and trying to get him for two or three hours. And because of the the need to, of time, the need for time, we were forced to announce this actually before Joe has official notification of it. I don't know how the hell we can do it unless we have some way we can get him out on the lake, but he is going to know within a uh, very few moments because Dorothy said he would call me at 11. Well, what brought this to the head? What did Gordon say or do that caused you to do this? Well, I, I don't want to comment on it, the fact that we felt for the best interest of what we're trying to do that we'd make this change. Hank, could you make just uh, some kind of a statement and sort of accepting the thing and just some kind of statement about you're taking over? 
Well, I was, I'm very thankful for the opportunity. I played under great managers, uh, namely one that you all know. I played under Gordon. I played under another great manager here in Kansas City by the name of Billy Meyer. And uh, I just hope that I get a little of all their managerial ingenuity. Uh, I think I can get along with all the ball players, and there's only one thing that, uh, as far as my managerial status goes, the only thing I demand is hustle. Uh, ball player gives me 100%, we'll get along very well. Hank Bauer would end up managing the Kansas City A's for the remainder of 1961 and all of 1962, finishing with a record of 107 and 137. Meanwhile, Frank Lane would last just two more months after ridding Joe Gordon of his job for the third time, as on August 22, 1961, an irate Charlie Finley fired Frank Lane after a stint of just four months as Kansas City A's GM. The A's owner expressed much regret in a allowing Lane to fire Gordon and showed spunk you don't often hear from a professional sports owner. Once again, here's extremely rare audio of an actual phone conversation between Finley and legendary broadcaster Monty Moore on the day Lane was fired, courtesy of Jeff Logan and the Kansas City Baseball Historical Society. Today, I fired Frank Lane as general manager of the Kansas City Athletics for the good of the ball club. And uh, the reason that I did it is because I have now been convinced that all of the rumors that have been spread about the Kansas City Athletics has been due entirely to Frank C. Lane. Charlie, uh, some of the press uh, stories today uh, have mentioned this rumor thing. Uh, what rumors in particular are you talking about that you found out he spread? Well, Monty, uh, there's been many rumors uh, spread uh, about my interference with the ball club, with the operations of uh, of uh, the ball club as far as the manager is concerned. And uh, as you know, a few months ago, we fired uh, Joe Gordon. And had we known at that time what we know today, we would have not fired uh, uh, Joe Gordon. Joe did a great job. Uh, if you recall at the time, uh, I mentioned that Joe had done a good job, and the only reason that I had fired Joe was because Joe had Lane-itis and Lane had uh, Gordon-itis. And uh, this is not to uh, uh, take anything away from uh, our good manager, Hank Bauer, who is doing a great job in managing the ball club today. And, uh, Charlie, then you have all intentions of keeping Hank Bauer on as your manager. Very definitely so. <clears throat> Again, I say uh, Hank uh, is doing a great job, and uh, I have great admiration for him. Uh, I'm sure the players have great admiration for him, and uh, I want to do everything that I help, can do to help Hank. Uh, Charlie, uh, there was also a statement today uh, out of your press conference which said uh, on a bus uh, in Minnesota last week uh, after a ball game, Frank Lane, uh, before many of the players, verbally chewed out Hank Barr and that you didn't like this. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, the uh, This incident happened in Minneapolis uh, recently when we were playing the last series in Minnesota. And uh, <clears throat> I asked uh, <coughs> Frank to uh, go ahead and uh, cover the games in uh, Minnesota. And uh, after one of the games, uh, Frank... Uh, I uh, rode with the team uh, after the game downtown in Minneapolis, and on the way down, uh, he uh, caused uh, Hank Bauer considerable embarrassment, 
in front of his ball players, which necessitated uh, uh, Hank uh, calling his players together the next evening and apologizing to his players. And uh, <clears throat> I took this action today because of the rumors that have been spread continuously within the last two weeks. And Monty, frankly, I've been so fed up with it that uh, I had no alternative other than to take the action that I took today. Charlie, you must have been awfully uh, fed up with it because, as I understand it, when uh, Lane came here, you told us that he was the highest paid manager in baseball, general manager, and uh, this is going to cost you some more money. Well, uh, money, I would much rather prefer to pay through the nose for a mistake that I made, and I'd be the first one to admit that I made uh, a mistake in hiring Frank Lane because it cost uh, cost, uh, Joe Gordon his job. I gave Frank the benefit of the doubt. And uh, uh, in all fairness to Joe Gordon, he did a great job. But at this, in the same breath, I must say that uh, Hank Barr is doing a great job. And uh, if I made a mistake in hiring Frank Lane, which I did, uh, I want to admit it. Uh, there's one thing that I always uh, expect and, uh, and demand in my organization, uh, that is loyalty. And I've not received that from Frank Lane, and uh, had I known what I uh, know now, uh, Joe Gordon would have uh, been uh, still been manager of the ball club. Charlie, you I didn't, excuse me, Monty, I took this action because I did not want to do the same injustice to Hank Bauer that was done to Joe Gordon. One man who played under Frank Lane, Joe Gordon, and Hank Bauer with the A's was outfielder Jay Hankins. Hankins remembers Gordon fondly, as well as another incident with Lane and Bauer. Frank had his own ideas, and uh, we were coming back from a game in Baltimore, and now Hank Bauer had took over, and Frank and he argued all the way back from from uh, the Baltimore Stadium to the hotel talking about a bad move Bauer, Bauer had made as far as pinch hitting for somebody early and not late and just you know and Frank was Frank was uh, yeah of course I didn't know him very well but he was eccentric to put to put it mildly uh, I got sent to the minors about June 15th and Hank Bauer took over when I got back to from from uh, AAA they were altogether different managers Joe Gordon and Hank Bauer so Joe was by far the best best manager well, I mean he was a student of the game, and he'd love to talk about the game. Joe Gordon eventually returned from fishing to discover he'd been fired by the A's, but once again had no trouble finding work in the game of baseball. Gordon was hired to scout and work as a roving hitting instructor with the California Angels from 1962 to 1968, which also included a one-month stint managing the Idaho Falls Angels. It was during this time that Joe met a guy who he'd later manage with the Kansas City Royals and the player who would get the first game-winning hit in Royals history. Joe Keough. Right after the first free agent draft uh, in 65, I was drafted by Finley in the athletics. I was having a hard time signing with Charlie at that point in time, and I, I had, uh, I guess, threatened to go back and play football. And Joe, I think, was with the Angels at that point in time. And Joe counseled me a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe going back and playing football and, and waiting around and signing the next year with the Angels. <laughs> But uh, he was a good man. He really was. He was right up front, honest. He had worked for Finley in the past and said, yeah, you know, just 
do what you have to do, but uh, we're here if you want us. Another future member of the Royals organization also crossed paths with Gordon during his Angels days, his eventual first base coach, Harry Dunlop. Dunlop recalls the first time he ever met Joe. Yeah, that's when I first met uh, Joe, when, when I uh, went over and, and became minor league manager for the Angels, and, and I met Joe then and uh, became friends uh, at that time, and... Uh, and, of course, you know, over the years, and he always used to kid me and say, well, you know, I don't think I'll ever manage again in the big leagues, but if I ever do, I'm going to take you as a coach. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I heard that a few times from other people, so you kind of take those things with a grain of salt sometimes. As with most good things in life, relationships are what lead to opportunity and success, and Joe's time with the Angels helped lead him back to Kansas City as the first manager of the expansion Kansas City Royals, hired on September 9th, 1968. Here's Harry Dunlop on how it happened. Well, the Cedric Tallis was the, became the first general manager, and Cedric was with the, the Angels. When, when we were all together with the Angels. And, of course, Joe had uh, managed there before Kansas City. And he was there, and, and uh, the way I hear the story in later years and that, I was told that they were talking about Hank Bauer originally because, you know, he was from Kansas City. And, uh, and I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, Mr. Kaufman wasn't too thrilled with that, and they were going back and forth, and... and uh, one of the fellows on the board of directors and that of the, the new Royals said, well, how about Joe Gordon? Uh, you know, he's, he'd be a good one with the young kids because he's such a positive thinker and this and that. And so he was kind of like a, a compromise. Uh, of course, he was more than happy to get the job and everything. But that, after the first year, that was it, yeah. All he wanted to do was that one year. As this documentary has already shown, Joe Gordon was thoughtful and a man of his word. So it's not surprising that one of the first things that Gordon did after accepting the Royals job was to keep a promise to one of his dearest friends and finally take him to the big leagues. Here's Harry Dunlop. I had just finished, uh, I was a player coach up at Seattle in the, in the Coast League in 68. And at the end of the season, the wife and I and the family drove home from Seattle. And when I pulled up into our driveway, my next-door neighbor came over and said, oh, did you hear about Joe Gordon? You know, we hadn't had the radio on or anything. And he says, he just was named manager of Kansas City. And I thought, oh, gee, that's great. And I didn't even remember what he had said to me or anything, you know. After we unpacked and everything, I called Joe up and congratulated him. And he said to me, he said, Hey, uh, what are you doing tomorrow morning? Uh, he says, I, I have, I used to do a little bit of handiwork and things like that, you know. And he said, uh, come on over. I got something I want you to do. And I said, okay. So the next morning I got over to his house uh, about 10 in the morning, I guess it was, whenever it was. And his wife, Dorothy, answered the door and, and said, uh, Joe's in his study. Uh, he's on the phone right now. And I walked in there and he was on the phone. And uh, he says, oh, very good. He says, oh, by the way, uh, he says, there's a manila envelope there. Open it up. It's for you. And I opened it up, and it was <laughs> Major League Coaching contract. The 1969 Expansion Royals enjoyed surprising success under Gordon, finishing fourth place in the six-team AL West with a record of 69-93. and 93. Dunlop believes the players deserve credit for most of that success, but that Gordon was the perfect fit for the Kansas City Expansion team. I think all the players that played for him, especially the, you know, that first year with the Expansion, we had guys that never played in the big leagues and that, and I think 
each and every one of them will tell you the same thing. He he was always good. He never, uh, you know, if guys made mistakes, he didn't yell at them. He didn't embarrass them in front of anybody or anything like that. He would talk to them uh, one-on-one maybe the next day or something like that. But, uh, you know, he realized that it's not an easy game to play and you're going to make mistakes. And as long as you try and correct your mistakes and do better the next time, that was fine with him. As long as you gave 100% when you're out there, 100% of what you had in that particular day, you were fine with Joe. If he thought somebody was dogging it, though, and, and not playing, then then they would hear it. Then they would get his wrath. But uh, he was a, I think he was an outstanding guy to handle the, the Royals' expansion that first year. I think it was very important that you had somebody like that. One of the most all-American things about baseball is the old-school heated argument between manager and umpire with chest bumping, saliva flying, and veins popping. And as Dunlop remembers, Gordon could argue with the best of them. We were playing in Detroit. Bill Kunkel was the home plate umpire. Let's see, Red Flaherty was one. I forget who the other one. Anyway, we had... uh, Two guys on, or base load, I forget exactly what it was. And Lou Pinella hit a line drive to left center field. And uh, Stanley was playing center field. And when he ran, uh, the ball hit the fence in the old ballpark. Uh, You know, it was kind of low fence in the outfield. It hit the fence and bounced back, and Stanley caught the ball and bounced out. And, uh, oh, it was uh, Bill Haller was... uh, second base umpire he ran out to call the play he called Lou out he thought the, he thought Stanley caught the ball well we argued like heck Joe come running out and he's arguing this and that and, and uh, you know he asked uh, Flaherty at first base did you see the play because uh, Haller came in and Bill says I gotta admit I actually didn't see the ball go in the, the glove he says because when I was running out all I could see was his back, but he, you know, he thought he caught it. So Joe says, "Okay, we'll ask the other guy." So Red Flaherty asked Red, and he says, "No, he didn't see it. He was watching the guy go around first base, and the other umpire was at third. I forget what he said. He didn't see it either. And then he, he so Joe goes back and asks Conco. He says, uh, "Bill, did you see the play at all?" "No, I didn't. I, I forget what he said. He was watching." And Joe says. You know, Kunkel, he says, you umpire the way you pitch. You used to pitch when you pitched for me before. <laughs> Kunkel throws him out of the game. Joe says, I knew it. <laughs> As Dunlop predicted, Gordon's Royals players had much good to say about their 1969 manager. Here's catcher Jimmy Campanis, who came to Kansas City from the Dodgers organization. Joe Gordon was um, the old school type guy. He was not a, you know... Um, he was not a small ball guy. He wanted home runs. He wanted this. He wanted that. But he did a great job with our young pitchers. I mean, he did. Uh, he and uh, yeah, Harry, they, they did a great job with our young pitchers. And that's why, that's why we did pretty good for an expansion team. One of Campanis' battery mates was Dick Drago, a starting pitcher the Royals selected in the expansion draft for the Detroit Tigers organization. Drago would go on to win 61 games for the Royals in five seasons, but when he first arrived in KC, was worn down after throwing more than 300 innings the year before. He credits Joe Gordon for correctly handling him and helping his arm to bounce back. I was just happy to be there and getting accustomed to a whole new organization and I was in the bullpen, didn't get a whole lot of work. I pitched a couple, came in and mopped up a couple of games in April. 
you know, and it gave me time to rest. It really was kind of the best thing that ever happened to me at that point, is not pitching much in April. And uh, from then on, it was just, uh, I remember coming in the game in Minnesota in the mop-up, and all of a sudden, everything, I, I was back, and I remember striking out two out of three batters in, in Minnesota, and I, cause I felt my everything had come back. The rest had helped me, and I was back to normal. And I remember him coming in to me and telling me that I was starting against the Angels in Anaheim on May 5th, I believe it was. And so I was going to get my first start, and I pitched a complete game and beat them 3-2. to two. And that was the first Royals ever complete game, believe it or not. Besides knowing the ins and outs of the game, Drago notes that Gordon was a true players manager and very good at reading his players. Oh, he was easy going. I mean, he didn't have many – there weren't many rules, and I think obviously we, we broke them all. <laughs> and uh, he'd come out to talk to you in, the, in games. He just would say something funny, and I don't remember – some of the things, it was like Bob Lemon was the same way. He was kind of that way when he come out there. He just would, he had a way of relaxing you, you know, when he came out to talk to you if you were struggling in, in, in an inning or so. And uh, I played for a lot of managers, and a lot of them were bad. You know, there was only a couple of them that I, I played for three guys that were, I thought, were good managers, Joe Gordon, Bob Lemon, and Don Zimmer. Though many of his Royals players didn't even realize it, Joe Gordon had planned on managing in KC for just one season all along, and on October 8th of 1969, Charlie Metro was named manager of the Royals. Joe Gordon would stay with the organization as a coordinator of instruction and a special assignment scout, doing so for several years after. According to former Kansas City Athletic Jay Hankins, who also worked in the Royals organization, his fondest memories of Joe were during this time. When I'd be covering one of our minor leagues or, or the expansion draft, uh, we had some really nice visits. And I say I knew him better then than, uh, than I did when I was playing for him. He would take, take you know, was peons out for, for uh, Chinese dinner and order for everything for us and just really a super individual. Joe Gordon also dabbled in real estate during his later years, but nothing could ever completely pull him away from the game he loved. Former coach Harry Dunlop remembers Gordon scouting up until the day he died and a fateful phone call on April 13th of 1978. He was doing that uh, in uh, 78 when he passed away. He had a heart attack, and uh, I'll never forget that because it was in April, and... Uh, I was still with the Royals, and we were on the road, and, and uh, I heard it, Joe, you know, I knew that he had a heart attack, and I called him at night and uh, in the hospital, and he says, oh, he says, I'm doing fine. He says, I'm going home tomorrow. Dorothy's coming to pick me up, and we're going, I'm going fine. And I guess the next morning, he got, he got up and got dressed, and they were, and his wife was down, uh, you know, filling out old papers to get him uh, to leave. And he had another massive heart attack, fell back on the bed, and that was it. So at least I got to talk to him the night before. So 
nice. Joe Gordon passed away on April 14, 1978. He was just 63 years old. The world lost one of the greatest baseball players ever that day, but more than that, a man filled with kindness, compassion, and beauty. Granddaughter Sue Arnold remembers her last conversation with Grandpa and a special, special baseball. Before he passed away, I remember saying to him, Grandpa, I don't have a baseball. And he said, why don't you pick one out? Because he had this huge thing of baseballs. So I grabbed, you know, went through what I thought I was picking a special baseball. And uh, he autographed it to me. And it says, to Susie, S-U-V-Y, love Grandpa Joe. And then he signed it, Joe Gordon. Kansas City Royals baseball. 1969. Those who personally knew Joe Gordon kept his memory very much alive. From April 14th of 1978 and onward, the life accomplishments never forgotten. However, a good majority of the baseball world seemingly overlooked and lost track of Gordon as the years passed until a small movement was created in the late 2000s to consider Joe for the Hall of Fame some 30 years after his passing. And in 2009, the Veterans Committee decided it was time for Joe Gordon to be inducted into Cooperstown. Hall of Fame baseball writer Bill Madden served on that very committee and takes us into the room the moment it was decided Joe would go into the hall. Well, I was on the committee that elected him. (laughs) Uh, And up until that point, uh, the Veterans Committee had met on numerous occasions considering all the players from that era. Uh, I called it the dead person era because none of them were alive. It was only a just a very few who were alive. Uh, and um, I remember being in the room. Uh, we we had a challenge in front of us because, you know, we're dealing with players that have been considered and considered and considered and rejected and rejected and rejected. Uh, some of the players on the ballot were Mickey Vernon and Reynolds was on the ballot, uh, which I thought was ironic. The two guys traded for each other. Um and um, there was a guy, a catcher named Deacon White from the 1800s, who wound up getting elected uh, uh, a couple of years later. And then we had Gordon. And at one point, um, Claire Smith, uh, who just got elected to the Writers' Wing of the Hall of Fame this year, she was brought up the fact that um, something that should be considered about Gordon was the fact that uh, how helpful he was to Dobie in uh, 1948. And uh, uh, that that should, you know, uh, during a time when Dobie was not being accepted very well with the Indians and he was, you know, going through that whole thing with the uh, trying to break the color line with the Indians. And that Gordon was a friend and a mentor to him and worked with him. And she said that should be taken into consideration. And so then we went around the room and... um, Steve Hurt, who was uh, also on the committee, he's uh, with the Elias Bureau, Statistical Bureau, and his primary duties uh, for the committee was to call up his little computer there. And and so he went on this dissertation about the fact that he said, well, the one player that Gordon most favorably compares to from that era, who's in the Hall of Fame now, is Bobby Doerr. And it just so happened that Bobby Doerr was also on the committee. He was sitting right next to me. So I said to him, I said, well, Bobby, (laughs) 
I guess it's up to you now. <laughs> what have you got to say about Joe Gordon? And Bobby Doerr said, Joe Gordon was a better player than I was. That was it. <laughs> we voted, and Joe got, I think, 11 out of 12 votes. Bobby Doerr's proclamation of Joe's superiority was quite the selfless moment and a tribute to Doerr's well-known character. And when prompted to name the best second baseman of that era, both Doerr and Gordon were mentioned by every single person that was interviewed for this documentary. Here's former Yankee teammate and AL president Bobby Brown. Well, he was awfully good, and he was right in that class with, you know, uh, Bobby Doerr and some of the other uh, second basemen, but uh, nobody was any better than Joe. Joe held his own against all of them, and uh, he was just an awfully good player. He, you know, he didn't hit for tremendously high average, but he he develops uh, good power, and he hit a fair number of home runs for a second baseman too. And he was a very, very good fielder. You know, he's very. Yeah, I think he was a gymnast, if I remember, a terrific athlete. And here's Cleveland Indian teammate Eddie Robinson. Dorr was a, a very, very good player. Joe Gordon was an outstanding player. He would make, uh, you know, he was kind of a gymnast. And uh, he would he would come across second base, catch the ball and throw it to me and tumble. And then he'd come in and say, how was that throw? He wouldn't even know where the throw was, you know. He was uh, he would make it in the act of falling, and therefore he didn't see the result of the throw. But uh, he oftentimes did that. He was one of the main cogs of that ball club, he and Boudreaux. Not only does Robinson believe Gordon to be the best second baseman of the era, but he also couldn't be happier about his 1948 roommate getting into the hall. Well, it was very exciting. He belonged in there, but he played in New York with a bunch of Hall of Famers. And I guess when you play with a bunch of guys, you get kind of overlooked, you know. You you do big things and uh, somebody else does a little bigger. Uh, but Joe belonged in the Hall of Fame initially, uh, every bit as much as Lou Boudreau belonged in the Hall of Fame. And uh, I, I just, uh, I was so delighted, of course, that, that he made it. There were a lot of people pulling for him. People like seven-year big leaguer and former Indians manager Ken Aspromonte. Oh, absolutely. He should have been in there sooner. You know, sometimes I, I disagree with the association or, or the foundation of the uh, Hall of Fame that there's a lot of players that should be in the Hall of Fame. Ron Santa was another one. Why do we have to wait till a man dies before you put him into the Hall of Fame? It's just not correct. If he's got the statistics, which Joe did and, and Ron Santo did and a number of other people did, they should go in now. It's happy that, put, that the Veterans Committee put him in. Mm-hmm. Joe Gordon was officially inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame on July 26th of 2009 with his daughter Judy present to give a speech and accept the honor. And as circumstances demonstrate, Flash Gordon may have very well been there that day too, both in Cooperstown and on the highway. This is granddaughter Sue Arnold. The crazy thing is, my mom, when she had told us that my grandfather was going to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, I had to make a decision when I knew my son was graduating basic training and the date was set, and I had to make a decision to either be with my son at basic training or to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. There was no question in my mind that I needed to be with my son We loaded up in our Denali, 
as our son had three days of leave before he had to report to AIT training. And we're headed down the freeway in Kentucky, and we turn the radio on, and lo and behold, my mom is speaking, and she it was within 10 seconds she said our son's name. And I thought, wow, if that isn't a coincidence. Here's grandson Eric Simpson. Oh, it was a magical, it was a magical day. Um, it was a magical weekend. This was at a time, so in 2009, it was very wet year in upstate New York, and there was always talk at the uh, at the induction weekend that, you know, gosh, we hope it's not rained out, or we hope it's not pouring, and stuff like that. So induction day came, and you had Jeff Idelson, you had, had um, uh, Jane Forbes Clark talk about, you know, the the event and stuff like that, and, and that was fine, and, and so it started raining, and the Hall of Fame crew and staff were giving all the families umbrellas and things like that, and it started raining pretty good. And there was like 21,000 people in the audience. As soon as my mom came up, they introduced my mom. As soon as my mom came up, started giving her speech, stopped raining, the clouds went away, and the sun came out. And at the end of her speech, it was beautiful. It was like beautiful weather. just perfect. And it was like, it was like, magic it was a miracle that it you know the the clouds broke and it became a spectacular bright sunny day and and in fact i even remember a reporter writing about that making a point of mentioning that you know geez something magical happened that as soon as she got up and started talking about her father you know, the, the weather just cleared away, and it was beautiful. Perhaps the strong connection felt by the Gordon family that day was a result of closure some 31 years after Joe's death. As Simpson notes, in a way, Joe Gordon had his funeral that day. You know, when my grandfather passed away in 78, it was kind of his wish that he didn't want to have a funeral. He didn't want to have a formalized funeral. He just kind of wanted his friends to get together and have some drinks and talk about him and things like that. So his body was basically buried at sea. And so my mom had said, you know, since my grandfather had this beautiful plaque right in the rotunda of the Hall of Fame, that that we view Cooperstown as his final resting place. And and that's true. I mean, I have no headstone that I can go to in Sacramento and, and see my grandfather or anything like that. So I, at some point, I'll have to return to Cooperstown and see see his plaque in the rotunda. Now that Joe Gordon is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, there would seem to be just one last remaining omission. No recognition in the famous Monument Park at Yankee Stadium. Here's Hall of Fame baseball writer Bill Madden. He's forgotten by his own team. Uh, you know, the, there's nothing commemorating Joe Gordon anywhere in Yankee Stadium or in Monument Park. Tino Martinez has a plaque in Monument Park, but Joe Gordon does not. So, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. I think he, yes, he was a very unappreciated player. His career was a little short. I think that hurt him. Uh, but um, uh, the very fact that he finally did get his plaque in Cooperstown, at least he got that recognition, but uh, it took a long time coming. And uh, even to this day, he's not somebody that, you know, you talk about great players and and all this, um, his name doesn't immediately come to mind. Uh, even great Yankees. I mean, every, you talk about great Yankees and second baseman, and uh, people immediately you mentioned Lazeri. And then even, uh, you know, 
in later years, people talk about Willie Randolph or Bobby Richardson. Nobody ever talks about Joe Gordon, who's in the Hall of Fame. Longtime Yankees PR director and author Marty Appel agrees that the Monument Park exclusion is wrong. Yeah, I had that conversation just last week with somebody in the Yankees front office, and they asked me, who do you think should be out there? And I said, well, I think if you're really going to catch up and put deserving people out there, you would start with the Yankees who are in the Hall of Fame, because if they could be in Cooperstown, they ought to be on the uh, on the wall in Monument Park. So, yeah, I'd be for a Joe Gordon plaque, as I would be for Wee Willie Keeler and Jack Chesbrough and uh, any others, Earl Combs, any others that uh, are in Cooperstown but not out there. As we've learned throughout the last 70 minutes, Joe Gordon impacted countless lives that he encountered during his 63-year journey on this planet. And perhaps it's Ken Aspromonte that sums Joe up best. One of the finest men I've ever came across in, in, a, in a game of baseball. I was so happy that I, I ran across him. He helped me in, in the Pacific Coast League, and he helped me in the major leagues by get, getting me. Uh, and sometimes managers do that, and sometimes, most of the time they don't. And, and he did it. He knew what kind of ball player I was, and he went after me, and he got me, and I performed well for him at Cleveland. And I was just so sorry that he left, but I'm so happy that he passed through my life, and I'm so sorry that he's gone. Before we conclude, I, Davo, would like to thank numerous people for their help in remembering the Royals with Joe Gordon. First and foremost, Joe and Dorothy Gordon's daughter, Judy, who was beyond accommodating with help throughout the long, tedious process that was this documentary. Judy never met a question she couldn't answer, and her heart was nothing short of beautiful, just like her father. To Judy's children, Eric Simpson and Sue Arnold, both willing to open up about Grandpa and let us into a world of terrific memories that help listeners feel as if they almost knew Grandpa Joe. To both of the men who played with Joe during his career, Bobby Brown and Eddie Robinson, both happy to reminisce about their teammate from long ago. To many of the men that Joe managed during his career, Ken Aspromonte, Jay Hankins, Joe Keogh, Jimmy Campanis, and Dick Drago, all with stories of how their skipper helped shape their lives in baseball. To Harry Dunlop, one of Joe's dearest friends and one of my favorite men in all of baseball, a man who is nicer than 75 degrees with sun. To 2010 J.G. Taylor Spink Award winner Bill Madden, formerly of the New York Daily News for 37 years and in the writer's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame, author of seven baseball books including Steinbrenner, Pride of October, and Lou. To longtime Yankees PR director and television producer Marty Appel, the author of 24 books including Pinstripe Empire, consider the definitive history of the Yankees. To Cleveland Indians author and historian Scott Longert, author of three baseball books, including No Money, No Beer, No Penance. To Jeff Logan of the Kansas City Baseball Historical Society, whose mission is nearly identical to that here at Clubhouse Conversation. And most of all, to you, the listener, for your support of the not-for-profit broadcast journalism found here on clubhouseconversation.com, where our only goal is to remember the Royals and give every single man in team history a place to be heard and preserved. Joe Gordon was as unique of a person as you'll ever find in baseball history, a power-hitting defensive maestro who literally made music in symphonies. Joe was a college-educated gymnast who flew airplanes and saw no color when it came to his teammates. And Gordon was a down-to-earth man who modestly walked away from the glamour of Major League Baseball to play in the minor leagues closer to home. Joe Gordon signifies everything that's great about the boys of summer. The wholesome innocence of yesterday, a generation of what once was and 
what could have been, and a larger-than-life man who nostalgically reminds you of boyhood boxes of baseball cards, transistor radios, and windows open on a stormy summer night. And that's why those of us in Kansas City are proud to call Joe Gordon one thing, Forever Royal. Thanks for listening to Remembering the Royals on Clubhouse Conversation with Dave O. Clubhouse Conversation is a not-for-profit source of Kansas City baseball history. Donations are appreciated and help offset the cost of domain, web design, and broadcast equipment. Please email Dave O at clubhouseconversation.com to help keep the site active. Thanks again for listening to Clubhouse Conversation.